seated. Well, if you're here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard me say we are all here today because we've been extended additional time. And I want you to know that if our time is extended to this coming Saturday, I've got some great news for you. Yes, it's the opening of college football season 2018. So, amens, I'm hearing all across the auditorium, and uh, I join with the throng here. And I want you to know I'm ready to go. I mean, I will have my big gulp in hand. I'll have my snack food all around easily within reach as my recliner sits back. My big screen's popped on, and I will sit there, I kid you not, for 12 hours uninterrupted watching game after game after game. Yes, hey, there you go. Another brother and a believer right there. And uh, so, you know, and in fact, you know, I, well, there will be an interruption. I will have to get up and go to the restroom, but I'm even looking into utilizing a catheter, so maybe I won't have to do that as well. So anyway, I'm excited. I know you are, but I want you to know I'm not the only ones in our pastor staff that's excited about this. Uh, in fact, Pastor Chris's, uh, Martinez and Thielen, they're already donning the outfit and the uniform of some of their, you know, of some of their favorite college teams. And the thing that's shocking about this picture that you're looking at is they don't just wear this in the stadiums, in the stands. They wear this to the office a lot of times during the week. So come by and you'll see that that's the case. But as surprising as that is, you haven't heard anything yet. I'm here to unveil some truth. And the truth I want to share with you, first of all, is, you know all that anti-raider rhetoric that you've heard spewed from the pulpit by Pastor Mike for these last 15 years, every fall season? Well, I came across some evidence that basically proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only does he not dislike the Raiders, he's an avid fan. Check it out. I know. I mean, who knew? Who really knew? But, you know, and he'll be back in the pulpit next week, and you know he's going to, you know, say that these allegations that Pastor Jay brought are completely untrue. I mean, he's going to sound like he stands before a Senate subcommittee hearing, you know, and says he can, you know, I think he'll try to deny it, but I want you to know when he does, it's fake news. So, uh, Eddie, but... But seriously, I spent 30 years as a college football coach, if you did not know that. And what I tried to do was integrate a biblical worldview into all the roles that I had. And like you, I've been in the secular world, and that can be extremely challenging because we know that in a lot of working environments, a lot of neighborhoods, there's an environment that's hostile to the Christian message. But when I was at state universities, I found out that I needed to more imply God's word rather than speak it outright. When I was at faith universities or faith-based universities, I could now uh, amplify my voice and carry out that message and let others hear it without fear of retribution. But regardless of where you may be employed today, one thing is certain, Christ followers must always apply God's word wherever they are, seven days a week, 365 a year. And, you know, our faith is not to be limited just to Sunday mornings. We are to either have it implied, amplified, but in all things, a biblical worldview must be applied. So today I thought I might flip the switch and just for uh, uh, the sake of not integrating a uh, biblical worldview into athletics, but maybe inject athletics into a biblical message. And so here goes, you know, I love sports because for whether it be individual participation or a team activity, I really believe athletic endeavors allow you to see 
and tell a lot about an individual. Now, granted, I mean, you take somebody to Boomers and give them a putter and a golf ball, and whether they get the ball in the clown's nose or not, that's not really telling you very much. But you take the same putter, you put it in the hands of an individual who's on the 18th hole on Sunday in Augusta, playing for the green jacket, and literally the entire world is watching to see if he'll become the master's champion. That's when I contend that you truly see into the heart of an individual and how they represent in those areas truly tells us a lot and it's indicative of how they'll respond in life. And in my opinion, there's nothing more exciting or more memorable than when you see the underdog achieve victory. You know, I, I, I like boxing and so when two men in the center of the ring eyeball to eyeball and one does the unthinkable by overcoming the odds and winning, that is truly special. Like when Muhammad Ali then known as Cassius Clay, defeated a heavily favored Sonny Liston for the world heavyweight title. Or, years later, a relative unknown named James Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson, who almost everyone, including yours truly, thought was invincible at the time. The drama and the flair from some of these athletic moments captivated so much that a lot of people immortalized them by making them motion pictures. When that happens, the plot's never about a predictable outcome. I mean, where's the intrigue in that? It's always about adversity being overcome or tragedy that turns into triumph. Like a movie that was released this past year. And before I get into that, let me mention this one that was released a few years ago. That first clip, anybody recognize what that's from? You see, any movie? Moneyball, very good. It's a very first frame in that movie. And what it establishes is this, is the Oakland A's clearly did not have the resources to compete, but they had to find a way. I mean, who can't pull for that? Except for if you're a Giants fan. But anyway, uh, the thing that I really love about that is it makes and establishes, rightfully so, I might add, the New York Yankees are truly the villain in that movie and at any time. So, but, you know, more than one movie has emphasized the sheer miracle of what you just saw. You know, and you look at things such as the Miracle Season that was released this past year. The Miracle Season was about the tragic death of a young 18-year-old girl. She was the captain and best player on this volleyball team in Iowa, and yet the girls on the team rallied together and went on to become state champions. Or the movie simply titled Miracle. I mean, if you're old enough, then you'll never forget the moment when the United States young men defeated the Soviet Union in hockey in the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid on their way to a gold medal. I mean, nobody thought that that could possibly happen. And the movie title simply comes from the final words of the broadcaster, Al Michaels, play-by-play, -play, when he said, Do you believe in miracles? Yes! And that's how we all felt, and that's how we feel today. We believe in miracles. And who knows, you know, they may even make a movie about a miracle that could occur this fall when the Santa Clara 49ers possibly become 500 in their season. So, <laughs> miracles can really happen, no question. Hey, we embrace these stories, they connect with us because at one time or another, we have all seen ourselves in a disadvantaged role. When the odds are not in your favor, how do you respond? Where do you turn? You cannot have, listen, a happily ever after unless some point in time in the journey of your life, the ending was in doubt. You cannot have a miracle occur unless at one moment you might have possibly almost been convinced of the impossibility of your task.
A good story will be told more than once. A great story will reverberate for all time. And that's what we have today. Today's message is a great story. It's one that continues to be told and needs to be told. It's one of the greatest comebacks in history. And it's a miracle that shows us lessons on how we can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So let's set the stage. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we read this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went on and told the man of God, And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This passage should encourage every Christ follower because regardless of what your present situation might be, our God can and will meet all of our needs and then some. If and when your back is against the wall, the story of the widow and the oil should encourage us and remind us that it ain't over until it's over. The fat lady hasn't sung. It's just time for us to initiate and take some action. You know, the word go is used in the first seven verses, in these seven verses. And so it has some significance. It means there needs to be an action on our part. And what is it? Well, let me share a personal anecdote that I think will help illustrate. You know, Charleston, South Carolina, where I lived for a decade, most of it resides below sea level. And what that means is when it rains, which it frequently does, whether it be hurricanes or tropical storms or just thunderstorms, it doesn't take long for that water table to rise. And in some places, it becomes precariously risky and into a potential flood situation. Well, because of that, they're really the soil there, the grass that's there, doesn't establish any firm roots. There's really nothing that allows you to have much traction if you rest upon that grass. Well, I'm leaving a basketball game from the university one evening, and as I went outside, it was obvious that it had rained. And also, I noticed that there were six cars that were parked on the grass. Now, they were parked in the grass, and there was a slight incline, kind of a lip that they'd have to climb to get up onto the asphalt so they could leave the parking lot and head home. And what was also obvious is these cars weren't going anywhere without a little help. So myself and about four other guys, we went from car to car. We gave them a little push. It wasn't much effort. They were able to get up over that incline and be on their way until we got to the last car. This last car was driven by a young co-ed, and, you know, two other guys got behind the car with me, and I said to the young co-ed, go, so that she would know to accelerate, the th- and uh, we would give a push, and she'd be on her way. Nothing. So we recollected ourselves, and I said, go, and we pushed again, not a smidgen. It did not move at all. When it dawned on me, maybe I needed to ask her an important question, and I said, is a car in neutral, maybe? She said, no, the car's in park. Um, <laughs> I kid you not, we just burst into laughter, you know, and, uh, you know, not at her, but at us, making an assumption that she should have known that, uh, you know, you had to have the car and drive to be able to get anywhere. But the moral story is this, we must be engaged for there to be any movement. 
We can't sit idly by and hope to go anywhere. We can't live our lives based on park. We've got to make a move. Warren Wearsby says this, the life of faith must never stand still. You're, if your feet are going, then your faith is growing. And the first place that all of us need to go at any point in time is go to God. In this Old Testament story, that's exactly what the widow of the story does. Her home was obviously established by faith. And I think it's safe to say that in this challenging season, season when she turned to the Lord, it wasn't the first time. She'd gone that way before. As the saying goes, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. So the widow knew immediately where to go because she knew already in whom she could depend. But others go there as a last resort, even royalty. Look at 2 Kings chapter 13. We read, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, first of all, on a side note, you know, what's Elisha doing? He's on his deathbed and he's still working for the Lord. And I think that reminds all of us is that we never, servants of the Lord never retire. Maybe there's things that we physically can no longer do, but we always have an ability to make a contribution. The backstory behind these verses is this. The northern kingdom of Israel had been under siege from the Syrians for quite some time. And the king finally turned away from the idols that he worshipped and turned to the man of God. Now he waited to the last minute and exhausted every other possibility, but at least he had the common sense to turn there at this time. I wonder... How many of us have done the same thing? How many of us have said, I got this God, and we keep him on the sidelines, and we're going to use our own willpower, our own knowledge, in order to get something done, and then and only when we are unable to do so, then we call him into the field of play. You know, as a coach, one of the things I do know is you don't keep your best players on the bench. When you do, you're sure to inflict a self-inflicted wound upon you and everybody within your realm. Shouldn't going to God be our first rather than our last option? I mean, what loss might we have prevented? What pain did we needlessly bear? All because of our pride and our intellect got kicked into play first. Listen, God is at the center of everything. And I'm going to show you just what I mean. Uh, and, and bear with me as I ask myself a set of series of rhetorical questions and then I supply the answer. But you'll see where I'm going. If you did not know this, I'll ask this first question. What is the shortest chapter in the Bible? Well, it's Psalm 117. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? A lot more people know this one. It's Psalm 119. Well, what chapter is dead center in the middle of all of Scripture? It's Psalm 118, right between the shortest and the longest. There's 594 chapters before Psalm 118, and there's 594 chapters after Psalm 118. And if you add those two together, what do you get? 1,188. Well, do you know what the center verse in all of Scripture is? Psalm 118, verse 8. These things can't be a coincidence, and here's what it says. And we should definitely pay attention to this. It says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. 
We all have a choice. We can either put our trust in God or we can put our confidence in mankind. But I want you to know the wisdom of the world is not as wise as we might think. There is a preferable place that we should turn. Paul says this, men are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Mankind's intellect is incomplete no matter what the propaganda they might profess. I was driving through San Francisco last year and I looked at a marketing campaign. It was on banners across downtown and it was from University of Pennsylvania and they were promoting their Wharton School of Business graduate degree. And if you don't know what the Wharton School of Business is, it is legitimately one of the top business schools in all the country. But what really got my attention were the words that they put to market and advertise and try to get people to sign up for their coursework and for that degree. It said this, learn from those who wrote the book. I couldn't agree more. But we don't turn to a textbook to get all the answers, no matter how well it might be written. We turn to the good book, and the good book says this. It says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Everything else comes up short. Listen, I'm a big advocate of education. You can't spend 30 years at higher levels of institution and not be, but I want you to know we simply can't rely exclusively on those that have been to- we've been told are the authorities, regardless of their field. I'll give you an example that begins in my high school days. And my spring semester in high school, I de- decided I would take research and expository writing. And I did so because I thought it would best prepare me for some of the papers that I would need to write when I went off to college. Well, the major portion of the grade that I would receive came from one term paper. So obviously, I spent quite a bit of time on that paper, and I turned in what I thought was a very good product. But I was greatly disappointed when I got the paper back, and it was a C plus. I really thought it was a better paper than that. Anyway, we moved forward to about six months later, and now I'm in first semester of college. I'm in political science 101 when all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, This syllabus requires that I turn a term paper in, and I think I could use the same paper that I wrote in high school and turn in to fulfill this requirement. After all, if you're, you can't plagiarize from yourself. So I simply took off the cover page, put on a different coverage page, turn it in, because my rationale was I had other coursework that was really more challenging than I needed to spend my time on than this. When I got the paper back, I smiled when I read the grade the professor gave me a B. It validated what I thought all along, that that paper was better than I thought my high school teacher thought it was. But the story does not end there, and don't get too far ahead of me, but I think you know where it's going. Graduate school, yes. I kid you not, this is a true story. I turn in the same paper, take that page off, put the cover page on, A. I get an A in graduate school. On the same paper I wrote in high school that was a C plus. Now, I want you to know, and I'm serious about this also, I've thought more than one occasion that I might go to work on my doctorate. But then I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, I don't know if it's worth the time, energy, or money just to get an A plus, you know? <laughs> I mean, really. And by the way, in case you wonder it, yes, I still have that paper. You never know, you know, it's, it's bode well for me before. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, true wisdom is relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. Bottom line is this, at the center of everything 
is trusting God. So what does that look like? Well, you know, let me give you two visuals. The first one, let me just tell you, is a team building exercise. And maybe in whatever job that you've been on, uh, in the profession that you're in, maybe you've gone away for a retreat and you've had a team building experience and you used one of these exercises. And I know I did as a team uh, as a coach during preseason camp to prepare for the season that was upon us. One of them that's pretty well known by most people is the trust fall. And if you haven't heard of that, the trust falls when you have another individual in front of me in this instance, and they're facing the same direction I am, so they can't see me, but they have to fall backwards and they have to trust that their partner is going to catch them. At least that's how it's supposed to work. Check this out. Okay, Margaret, go ahead. <laughs> Don't assume anything, right? Don't assume anything. So I got a better visual aid to, to, to share with you regarding trust and trust in the Lord. This one here. All right, this is the men's crew team at Harvard, and it's on the Charles River there in Boston. You can see behind there, uh, top of the MIT library. And for seven years, as I worked at Harvard, I would drive along Storo Drive, which was right beside the Charles River, and quite often I would see the men and women on their racing shells or their skulls training. I admired their discipline and such, and their crew houses were pretty close to the office that I had. But one of the things that really got me as I watched them was you know, this is the only sport that I know of, if you look at the, the frame, where everybody in the boat except for one, they all cross the finish line blind, it backwards. I mean, what other sport do you know that does that? There's one person that faces forward. He's known as the coxswain. The coxswain's the person that encourages those that are rowing. He challenges them. He guides them. He directs them. He points them on the path from the beginning to the end. Through all the ripples of the water, he brings them safely to their destination. Does that sound familiar? Well, I have to admit, as I look at these things, the parallel has got to be clear. Whether it's backwards or forwards, it makes no difference. We just need to trust him. Like the widow, that may already be your habit today. Or like the king, it may be for the first time. It's a trust fall of sorts, but we can count on him to catch us with open arms. Proverbs says this, in everything we do, nothing's been qualified there. In everything we do, put God first. Second place where to go is where to go to others when there is a burden. Now, I know we all have had burdens. The rubber has met the road for us, and in those instances, we have a natural inclination to isolate ourselves. We want to bunker down, and nothing could be worse than us taking that action. Revelation 1 says this, very first verse, We are all brothers and sisters, partners in suffering and endurance. In times of need, we simply need to ask for help. And there is a caveat, and let me share that with you, and it's supported in Scripture as well, and it tells us how to operate, and that is this. The caveat is type 1 and type 2 errors. I'm always kind of talking about these things in everyday uh, work around our office, but a type 1 error would be, in this case, is going to somebody for help when we really don't need to. It's really our responsibility. Type 2 error is not going to someone when there is certainly reason to go there. We just keep it to ourselves. But in Galatians, we find out how to clarify those two and what we should do. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we read, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. 
few verses later, we read, for each one should carry their own load. So which is it? We have a burden and we have a load. So what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. A burden is something that is above and beyond the realm of the daily activities, the norm. As an example, in my life, it was the surgeries and the recovery that I had this summer and how our group here, this church family and how our small group came forward to assist us. It was right for us to seek assistance during that time because that's not the common, typical, everyday experience that you have. What's the load? The load is the thing that you and you alone should be taking care of, the responsibilities that you have, such as preparing for the sermon this morning. It would be unjust for me to place that yoke on somebody else. That's my job to do that. And that's the difference. But to meet our needs, I want you to know that the Lord sometimes will lead us to the most unlikely individual and take us to a place of scarcity so that we might learn a valuable lesson. During a period of drought and famine, like the widow and her sons, Elijah was about to learn what God could do through empty vessels. We read in 1 Kings chapter 17, read along with me if you would, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we might eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, the common denominator in both of these stories is not the oil. It's the lesson that the Lord wants us to learn. And that is we are to rely on the source, not rely on the resources. I like what Hudson Taylor says. He says, many Christians estimate difficulties in the light of their own resources, and thus attempt very little and often fail in the little they attempt. All God's giants were weak men who did great things for the Lord because they reckoned on his power and presence with them. Watchman Nee goes on and says, you know, as with Elijah, because of our proneness to look at the bucket and forget the fountain, God has to frequently change his means of supply to keep our eyes fixed on the source. And Christian brothers and sisters can do that for us as well. In coaching vernacular, help us to keep the eye on the ball. This is one of the reasons why we talk about small groups so much. We know what it will do for you. You know, Pastor Chris will be out there with his team and they'll be talking about registering you for groups today. And we really encourage you to become a part of it because, you know, I, I do have philosophies that I spout that are just meant to be jokes, such as telling people, hey, don't tell people about your troubles. 80% don't care and 20% are glad you have them. That's just a joke. But the fact of the matter as expressed between Elijah and the widow in this story is just the opposite. Here's the truth of the story is when we go to others, we both end up being blessed. 
One final comment about going to others, and that is this. Don't assume that they know. Please don't assume that they know. You know, doors have doorknobs for a reason. They, you can open and twist the knob and go out and let people know the plight that you're in. And they can twist the other knob and come in and be beside you during that time. Our pastors, we try as best we can uh, to uh, help meet the needs and to address the things that we're aware of. But I want you to know, no perfect people allowed starts with us. We're going to miss some things. And I, and I want you to know also, we can't go unless we know. So don't assume that we know as pastors as well, too. And the other thing is this. Understand that right now we have five pastors. We're looking for a sixth one, doing a search. But we have over 1,200 ministers here every Sunday. And that's all of us. And we're all called to serve. And you know, sometimes a pastor is just what the doctor ordered for a scenario. But sometimes it's you. Sometimes you are the widow. And a modern day Elijah is, needs to be fed. And only you are the one that can do it. The third go is this. We are to go put God's resources to use. I mentioned this a couple weeks back. We're to be consumers as well as distributors. We're supposed to consume God's word. And we're supposed to distribute the word out to others that we come in contact with. You know, it would not have done the widow much good if she would have sat on all that oil. She needed to go forth and she needed to sell it. She needed to follow the instructions to the very end. Trusting God is not just a matter of knowing. It's a matter of obeying. I like Francis Chan. If you read some of his work, there's an interaction he has with his daughter that helps declare this point. He basically told her to go clean her room like all of us as parents have done. And when she came back, he said, did you clean your room? And she said, no, but I memorized those words. Go clean your room. Aren't you proud of me? Well, you know, that's the same for you and I today. Memorizing God's word is awesome, but not if you don't do anything with it. We're supposed to put ourselves out there and be able to do something on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of others. Obedience is in the, not just in the believing, it's in the doing. And that means from beginning to end, doing it all. The second takeaway from our Old Testament story is this. He takes what we have and he multiplies it. You know, math is not always easy for most people. In fact, statistics tell us that four out of every three people have troubles with fractions. And I'm going to pause a little bit longer. All right, now you're with me. Hey, but multiplication has always been part of God's plan. In Genesis chapter 1, he says, go and populate the earth. In the New Testament, Jesus supersedes that with a new command. Go and make disciples for the kingdom. You know, in the Old Testament, he tells Abram, he says, I will make you a great nation. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I will make you a great body. And that's what we are today, the body of Christ as we move forward. And when he does something great, a great work, quite often what God does is he starts with the little that we have. Moses had a rod in his hand. And look at the amazing things that God did. Peter and his partners had a fishing net in their hands. And a young lad had two small fish and a few loaves of bread. And he was taken to Jesus and look what transpired. You know, with that, while these miracles are tremendous public demonstrations meant to be experienced by a multitude of people, some miracles are meant to be experienced privately, such as with the widow of our story. Look again at verse 4. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour all oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. 
this isn't the only time in all of Scripture where a devoted follower is encouraged to recuse his or herself from the outside world so that they can have a more intimate encounter with the Heavenly Father. I'm lying in bed the other night and I couldn't sleep, so as I often do, I'll reach for the Bible and read it. I didn't know exactly, well, what do I want to read? It can't be a coincidence that the Lord took me to Matthew 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go away by yourself and shut the door behind you. I mean, those are the exact words from the message that I determined to bring to you today that I determined like months ago that I was going to preach about this this day. And pray to your father in private, then your father who sees everything will reward you. While public prayer certainly has value, prayer completely away from public view, whether for the individual or for the group, has value as well. It allows us to focus more exclusively on God. Publicly or privately, the Lord multiplies. Sometimes there will be leftovers, as with the fish and the loaves, as with the widow that kept pouring. At other times, we may have a surplus, we may not have a surplus, but in those cases, like the widow that fed Elijah, God will make you have just what you need. He will give you just what you need. The great thing about this is when this happens, we forfeit to him on a regular basis, on a daily basis for our sustenance, and that's not a bad place to be. In either instance, our God can make our little go a long way. Point number three, we determine the amount of blessing we receive. Jesus said this, according to your faith, let it be to you. The story of the widow's oil does not state how many vessels they got, how many jugs that they brought back, whether it was 10 or it was 10,000 or some number in between. But we do know this, the amount of vessels represented the amount of faith. For when the supply of vessels came to a close, only then did the oil stop flowing. We truly determine the amount of blessing we receive. It was a lesson that King Jehoash still had to learn. We return to the story of him, him with Elisha on his deathbed. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the vic arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Afekt. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will only defeat it three times. You know, Jehoash lacked the spiritual discernment that a follower of Christ has. A follower of Christ goes to the word. A follower of Christ activates their faith. As opposed to the widow, this king did not have the spiritual understanding to make the most of his opportunity. He had, consistent, had he consistently followed the Lord, his eyes would have been open and he would have been able to see the truth, but instead his eyes were as blind as the idols that he followed and worshipped. Paul David Tripp says this, biblical hope is nothing less than a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. The widow had a biblical hope. She had a faith and it led to abundance, but the lack of faith thereof of this king led to insufficiency. You know, God is consistent. His word can be trusted and his word promises this, that problems precede prosperity. Faithfulness promises overwhelming reward. And the story of the widow's oil isn't the only story that lets us know that we have available to us an overflowing blessing 
if we just put it into play. In Malachi 3, we, hear, we read this. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I like the way the NASB version reads. It says, the Lord will pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The parallel is obviously clear. What is the action that the Christ follower must take in order to enact this overflowing blessing? Well, we read again in Malachi chapter 3, the same verse. And we find out that the vessel is not in collecting jars. It's all about our money. Bring your full tithe to the temple treasury so there will be ample provisions in my temple. You know, we need to do what God tells us to do, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Remember the story that Pastor Mike brought a couple weeks ago about Naaman? I mean, what sense did it make? And Naaman said this, that I have to go to this muddy river and bathe myself there in order to rid myself of leprosy. What sense did it make that the widow and her sons had to go collect these jars? I mean, sometimes I think we need to tell ourselves, stop already. You know, we're trying to use human reasoning in order to understand divine manners, and that will never work. We will never have all the answers. 1 Corinthians says, Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. The Lord reveals only what He wants to reveal, but when He does, we're obligated to do as He commands. Unbelief sees the obstacles, but faith sees the opportunities. We're to do everything in the natural and trust God for the supernatural. But you know, in order to do that, we've got to put ourselves out there. We've got to be in a vulnerable state. And how many of us have really, really done that? I mean, it's not risk if we truly believe that the Word of God is true. It's a calculated gamble on our part that it comes about to be 100% accurate. Sometimes we have to understand it's not about living life to be comfort comforted and be in a safe zone. It's about being stretched. It's about growing and we can't grow unless we do something that we cannot do on our own. We have God's word there to promise us. Do we trust him? Do we put him at the center of everything? In short, proverbially speaking, go get vessels when you have that opportunity. And that opportunity is probably available to you today. Point number four. The Lord can do more than we could have ever imagined. I share this from a book that I read a while back, and, and uh, I think you'll see how it bears uh, truth to what we're discussing today. Helen Rosevier was a missionary doctor who spent 20 years in the Congo at a clinic and orphanage. When Helen had been there almost four years, a mother died in labor, leaving behind a premature baby and a two-year-old little girl. The facility had no incubator or electricity. Dr. Rosevier's first task was to keep the newborn warm. She sent a midwife to fetch a hot water bottle. The nurse returned with bad news. The bottle had burst when she filled it. Worse yet, that was the last bottle. Dr. Rosevier instructed the midwife to sleep near the newborn. They would seek a solution the next day, but a solution wasn't going to be easy. The clinic was in the heart of the jungle, miles away from any help. The life of the newborn was in jeopardy. The following noon, the doctor mentioned the concern to the children. She told them of the frail baby and the sad sister and asked them to pray. A 10-year-old girl named Ruth decided on her own to take the problem to Jesus. Please, God, send us a hot water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow. God, as the baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. 
And while you're at it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so that she will know that you truly love her? The doctor was stunned. That prayer could only be answered by the arrival of a parcel from home. And in the nearly four years that she had been there, she had not received one package. Even if one came, who's going to send a hot water bottle to the equator, she thought. Someone did. Later that afternoon, a 22-pound package was delivered to Helen's door. As she called the children, she felt tears in her eyes. Could it be? They pulled the string and unwrapped the paper, and in the box they found bandages, jerseys, raisin sultanas, and a brand-new hot water bottle. And at the bottom of the box... A doll for the little girl. The box had been shipped five months earlier. The Lord had heard the prayer before it had ever been offered. Miracles happen all the time. They happened with a widow that kept on pouring. They happened in the Congo. And they can happen for you today. I believe God's word when it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. We just need to put it to work. Finally, we all need a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a male relative who could step in, stand the gap for a family member and relieve them of their debt. According to Hebrew law, since the the widow had no kinsman redeemer, the creditor could take her and her children and make them his servants. Well, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Unlike the Hebrew widow, we were born enslaved. It has nothing to do with an outstanding bills. But because of our sin is why we're in the state that we are born in. We read in God's word, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is an eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin has put us in a position of debt and there's a price that must be paid. And only Jesus can pay the debt. And thank God he sacrificed himself and he paid that. And he paid it the full balance, the full measure for each and every one of us here. We no longer have to be enslaved to sin. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, he fully responds. And we become recipients of all that grace. He is a resource that does not need to be replenished. It's truly a miracle. Once and for all time, he is our coxswain. He is our redeemer. In Christ, our triumph is secure. Our victory is complete. And our vessels, by faith, can and will overflow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message that you bring today, that you want each and every one of us to hear. It's not by chance that we're here today. Father, it's by predestination. We, Father, pray that you would work in us through our hearts and through our minds, that we would not only know the truth, we would act upon the truth, that we would be in obedience to you in all areas of our life, that we would imply your word, that we would amplify your word, but at all times we would apply your word. Father, may we lead in our homes, in our communities, in our jobs during the entire duration that we are here. 
Father, I thank you that by faith people give to your work. We pay it forward through our giving of our tithes and our offerings and sacrificially above and beyond to next gen so that your work would continue and your body, your great body, will continue to grow. And we will celebrate with those that we have touched because of our faithfulness, maybe not on this lifetime, but in eternity. We love you. We trust you. We put our money, our actions, our heart where our mouth is. In Christ's name we pray, amen.